Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join, or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. If you accuse someone of criminal conduct, that can be defamation. Does the same go if you accuse someone of being corrupt? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, Rob Ford got sued for characterizing a, a deal around like a restaurant lease in the beaches as corrupt. Uh, he, he won that lawsuit, but yeah, oh, yeah, you, you can get sued. So corruption is kind of a catch-all term that implies various crimes or unethical behaviors. It's a term that gets thrown at politicians sometimes, and it's also a term that politicians throw at one another. To varying degrees of uh, effect. I mean, if you're someone like Doug Ford, you know, you just toss it out again and again and again when something doesn't smell right and you, you see how far it gets you. Which is to say, is it a term we should be using more around Doug Ford? I don't know. Is it better to phrase things in the form of a question? Perhaps. In this episode, we're going to discuss what Doug Ford's move to open up the green belt means politically, environmentally, and on the housing front, but also what it means for a populace to watch a social contract be discarded in front of its eyes. Quite a few of our episodes end up being about that, really. Once again, Doug Ford and his government are backtracking on a promise. We should have like a wheel we can spin. This month it'll be like mining policy. I, I don't know why we put that one on the board. No, no. As, as Allison said, we're going to be talking about the green belt. The pressure to go back on his word in this case appears to have come from a number of developers who will benefit wildly by the opening up of the protected lands. Yeah, I mean, a handful of people will earn, I don't know, billions? Is it on the billion scale? A lot of money, at least in the hundreds of millions, thanks to the PC's decisions. And as that happens, the rest of us are out here left trying to figure out if maybe we should take a cue from Ford and not be quite so shy about throwing around the word corruption. I'm Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today, and in this episode, we're also going to talk about the Auditor General's report. 
but in a fun way. Is there any other way to talk about an Auditor General's report? I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Candleland, and I find myself thinking back to the karate classes I took as a kid, and how I only ever made it as far as an orange belt, I think, or maybe yellow. Either way, I, I, I gave up before the green. This is Wag the Dog, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. Not not all of it. We're going to open a big chunk of it up, and we're going to start building and making it more affordable and putting more houses out there. It, Look how his tie sits on his body. <laughs> so long and weird. But no one can afford them. So we need to start building affordable housing. I've already talked to some of the biggest developers in this country, and again, I wish I could say it's my idea. But it was their idea as well. Give us property, we'll build, and we'll drive the cost down. That's my plan for affordable housing. That was a clip of Doug Ford in early 2018 when he was running to be PC leader. After the Liberals leaked the video about a month before the election, Ford unequivocally promised he would never, ever, ever mess around with the Greenbelt. Unequivocally, we won't touch the Greenbelt. Unlike other governments that don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear, people don't want me touching the Greenbelt. We won't touch the green belt. We'll figure out uh, how to clean up this housing mess and this housing crisis that we're facing in a different fashion. But all my friends, I listen to you. You don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. All my friends, I listen to you. I remember when both of these things happened, but it had been a long time since I had actually watched either of these videos. And a few things jump out at me. First, Ford has been talking about the housing crisis in the exact same terms now for four and a half, almost five years. Mm -hmm. The language he uses to the developers about the demand for single-family homes is literally the exact same stuff he's been saying in the past, like, few months. Recently, he said a few times that everyone in Ontario should be able to get a home with a white picket fence that goes up in value, which, like, explicitly saying those all of those words together tells you everything you need to know about his understanding of what's perpetuating the housing crisis in Ontario and Canada. Yeah, he talks about solutions to the housing crisis as though he's reciting the lyrics to Somewhere That's Green, which perhaps actually explains a lot. I don't understand that reference, but I believe you. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the I Want song from Little Shop of Horrors. The other thing that jumps out to me is about opening up the green belt. He explicitly says in the video, the leaked video, he says, I've already talked to the biggest developers in the country. I wish I could say it was my idea, but it was their idea. So now, four and a half years later, we don't even have to wonder if it was developers or landowners who influenced Ford to do this. He already just told us that they have. And so, on the fourth day of November, the Greenbelt suddenly encountered a threat to its very existence. And this terrifying enemy surfaced, as such enemies often do, in an announcement from Municipal Affairs and Housing Minister Steve Clark, who declared that 7,400 acres of land across 15 separate areas of the Greenbelt would be freed up for housing development. He claimed this would allow for 50,000 homes to be built and that the province would make up for it, mostly by designating ravines around rivers as part of the Greenbelt, even though developing a ravine wasn't really a thing. Plus, I mean, there's a reason that the Greenbelt extends beyond rivers, as protesters outside the office of Oakville MPP Stephen Crawford told Your TV Halton last week. And as a farmer, if we don't protect our farmland, we're in big trouble. 
we are really lucky in Ontario to have such a temperate climate for the most part compared to other places in the world we're lucky and it's because of places like the Greenbelt that help us with flooding that help us with temperature that help us with our food supply and when we threaten that you know once you pave it over we can't unpave it and that soil will be ruined. The 50,000 homes number is interesting because it's pretty small. Remember the PCs are promising to build 1.5 million homes in a decade. Now, there's virtually no chance that that actually happens. The Ministry of Finance's official home start targets, basically, they say as much. But even if we take Clark's promises at face value, it's clear you don't need to develop the Greenbelt to build needed housing. And I think it's worth saying, because I don't know if everybody knows this or if they knew this before a month ago, but Ontario's Greenbelt, which was set up by Dalton McGinty in 2005, is on private land, most of it. So people, farmers, you know, uh, land speculators, homeowners own land that's on the Greenbelt, but it's just that it can't be developed under the provincial law which obviously ticked off a lot of those landowners in 2005 when it was set up. It's also why the shape of it is, like, very haphazard and weird. It's not like a perfectly shaped rainbow arc. It's kind of all crazy and all over the place, and that has to do with the land parcels. So it's a political thing. But, you know, the the social contract of the political thing is that no government will change it and it will be maintained through law forever. And that's what's, you know, through being destroyed. Law. Forever. You can you can hear the air quotes, presumably. Well, we know Ford's wanted to do this since 2018. This is no surprise, but it is notable that as soon, you know, very soon after being elected to his second mandate, that Ford jumps on the green belt. I, uh, I keep wondering if it was like overdetermined that this was going to happen. Was Ford always going to break apart the green belt? Part of me says yes, and we were just waiting for it to happen. Back on the housing crisis front. Minister Clark last year made a housing affordability task force. We've talked about it on the show before. The task force is the ones who came up with the 1.5 million homes needed number. So the government's listening to them on that and to, you know, some other zoning reform stuff they suggested. But its final report explicitly said a shortage of land isn't the cause of the problem. So it was saying the Greenbelt is fine. You don't need to rip it up. There's lots of land around that's we're not lack- in it. Yeah, we're lacking enough things before building housing already. Land is, is, is it just does not happen to be one of them. And that task force was made up of, like, banking CEOs and real estate developers. So it wasn't exactly a bastion of anti-capitalist ideology. I suppose there's at least a more logical connection between building housing and opening up land to development than there is between building housing and, say, letting the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa unilaterally approve transit lines without any say from their respective councils. But the housing crisis is so obviously just a convenient excuse for just superficially connected things that Ford was already itching to do that it's like, I don't know, it's like the U.S. invading Iraq as a consequence of 9-11, right? I can just imagine Steve Clark showing up to a committee with a vial of greenbelt soil that he claims is evidence of, like, untapped front lawn potential. One thing I've been thinking about a lot, even before this greenbelt news came out, is that in the face of a housing crisis and unanimity among politicians that building more houses is a major part of the solution to it. We're all put in a position where developers are like the good guys. 
and even like our saving grace. And it's not that every developer is a bad guy. And of course, we do need them. Like, I can't build myself an apartment building. <laughs> we can try it together. <laughs> Want to? But a lot of them do really shady shit. Like, there are continuous news stories about developers that took deposits for condos and then want to, like, double the price before someone can uh, move into it, that kind of stuff. Most don't care what gets destroyed to build something that makes them money, and, and lots will build the crappiest housing stock imaginable to make the biggest profit they can. Which is essentially the defining characteristic of Toronto's urban landscape. Absolutely it is. The other point worth making is that now there's no longer a guarantee that the Greenbelt is off limits, that the law will exist forever, or whatever I said before. There's a lot of room for developers to continue to pressure the government to open up more of it. The whole point was that the Greenbelt was a line in the sand, and without that, it's basically useless. I mean, as soon as reporters began to dig into the parcels of land that are, that are being opened up, a pattern emerged pretty quickly. Many of the landowners who will benefit are PC party donors and or hired some PC-linked lobbyists to advocate for them. Some of the land that is now being opened up was purchased within just the past 18 months, including by a company run by the de Gasparis family, which the Globe discovered had bought a $50 million piece of land by taking out a $100 million bank loan at 21% interest, which suggests they may have sensed an increase in the asset's value in the near to medium term. The de Gasparis family name keeps coming up, and I think it was no surprise, honestly, that it came up multiple times in these stories about which land is going to get developed. And the companies that they control were already found by the Toronto Star slash National Observer to massively benefit from the PC's Highway 413 development. And this brings me to a wider issue I want to contemplate, Jono, mm -hmm. which is just how blatant this all is. Mm -hmm. The PCs know that reporters are going to be able to figure this stuff out. Mm -hmm. So why did they do it like this? Because they can? I mean, I, I keep thinking about a tweet from a couple weeks back from Rob Salerno, who's an actor slash playwright slash single game Jeopardy champ, um, who's from Toronto originally or hereabouts, but now is based in L.A. And this wasn't really like an original observation, but for some reason, his particular framing just stuck with me. And he just tweeted uh, in response to all this Greenbelt stuff. I do not understand why conservatives are regularly given a pass on stuff like this, but Kathleen Wynne asked a candidate to drop out of a nomination race, and we've got four years of calling her the most corrupt politician in Canadian history. Why can conservatives get away with this stuff so so casually? Why is it that a scandal that would, or something that would envelop the Wynne government in a scandal for eight months and maybe involve a police investigation, why is that just like a, a Tuesday for Doug Ford? We talked about this on the show like a you know, year, two and a half, and a while ago, like how like half the people to whom the PCs awarded the Order of Ontario for 2020 were party donors, including some who hadn't even been consistent donors, but happened to give them money in the span of a few weeks preceding the announcement of the awards. Right? Like I feel like we get something like that every few weeks. And in financial terms, at least, the potential rewards with the green belt are probably the most significant in terms of benefits people might receive. Yeah, I think so. I mean, especially the value of land that was bought before 2005 to what it'll be worth now is just absolutely enormous difference. Although, I mean, if anyone had any land in Ontario before 2005 and still has it, chances are they've made out pretty well. That's true. So for the first three weeks after this Greenbelt announcement was made, Minister Steve Clark refused to directly answer whether he was lobbied by the landowners to make the decisions about the Greenbelt. 
Eventually, last week, he finally said no, but that was after not answering like so many times, including a question period, including direct questions from reporters. And then all of a sudden one day he's like, no, absolutely not. I mean, that sounds like the political communications equivalent of a response that you type out, you know, beginning with an ellipsis, the three dots, then followed immediately by a lowercase no. So like, no. No. And going back to just so how long this the green belt has rankled some very particular people, the CBC dug up a quote from 2006, so just after the green belt was created by McGinty. Silvio de Gasparis, who already, like we said, owned a lot of this land at the time, told the Toronto Star, McGinty has already hurt me. I am going to hurt him. Yikes. <laughs> Since 2014, the first year this data is available, the de Gasparis clan has donated something like $126,000 to the PCs. It's a lot of money, but like the Mario Cordellucci thing we talked about in the last episode, he's the other major developer who will benefit from Highway 413 and who the PCs just named to the York Police Services Board. I just don't know if donations tell the whole story anymore. Like, the PCs have already raised $9 million this year, The amount they can fundraise from any family, no matter how big or powerful they are, is like just a drop in the bucket when it comes to that. Like, do donations to a political party, is that enough to get your land turned over? I don't know if it's about Like quid pro quo? What is it then? I don't know. Maybe just general chumminess, doing favors for each other. That's how many of these people probably have conducted business their whole life. I'm sure that's how Doug Ford operated in the private sector. It's probably how these developers operate in the private sector. It's an exchange of favors. You know, when that extends into government, then you're dealing with public assets, public resources, public money, and it's in, it's a problem. I mean, it. that's the thing. is like I don't know if like, – you're right. At a certain point, it's like it can't be about – Money, the money, I mean, like, I'm sure the money's appreciated. But not... again, the money doesn't even go, like, you know, yeah, if the I mean, money like... is raised by the PC party, it doesn't, like, go in Doug Ford's pocket. It goes to, like, the organization, which uses it to fund salaries and yeah. buy pizza or but the whatever. Money is, for all we know, the money is probably just incidental. Yeah. What I mean, what do we know about Doug Ford? We know that he has a great deal of patience for people who have spoken to him in person, for people who talk to him one-on-one, less on the phone. His brother was really on the phone. He has a great deal of patience and will try to go out of their out of his way to help people with whom he has proximity. And that can mean proximity in a few different things, but including person-to-person interaction. I mean, is it that simple? The question Rob Salerno raised is a really interesting one that certainly I've been thinking about on the, the political philosophical level the past few weeks is like, what is it that allows the, the, the PCs to be so casual about these sorts of relationships. I will say, so I was looking through Hansard transcripts for the word corruption mm. or corrupt Ooh, being used in um, I love these quantitative in analysis. the chamber. It's honestly not very many. I don't have the around 10 since 2008, maybe. And lots of times it was in reference to other stuff that wasn't like directly calling a government or an opposition party. But the two most recent ones were Peter Tabins accusing Doug Ford of corruption over the green belt. So he went there. And then I think like four days later, Doug Ford himself answering a question about something else in question period and uh, just casually screaming that the former liberal government was the most corrupt government in history. Mm. So getting it right back. Speaker again to the Premier. Once the de Gasparis' family's 1,775 acres of Pickering farmland are removed from the Greenbelt, land worth about $24,000 an acre as protected farmland, 
would be worth at least 383,000 per acre as developable greenfield, based on what Seton Land went for in 2016. If you do the math, we find the Premier is about to instantly transfer nearly two-thirds of a billion dollars in speculative profit to his friends and PC donors just by removing their pickering farmland from the Greenbelt. Does the, fee, the Premier finally understand how corrupt this looks? Previous Premiers had an inquiry. i got to remind him, he was part of the most politically corrupt government this province has ever Actually, one thing that does sort of remind me of a little bit was how the day, when David Miller, who was mayor of Toronto before Rob Ford, when David Miller was mayor for seven years, there were no real major scandals engulfing his administration. I mean, he, they looked into scandals from the previous administration. There was there was nothing there was nothing on like a big like on a corruption level like there had been in the previous terms. And in the absence of that, there was an inordinate focus on things that were problematic but not really scandalous but treated as though they were scandalous around council expenses and stuff like that and there was a real disconnect between the proportion of wrongdoing that had occurred under the previous mayor and frankly under the next mayor uh and basically what in the absence of any sort of actual wrongdoing what was blown up as though it had been scandalous any government that's in power for 15 years is going to accumulate a lot of fucking baggage. People sometimes go to jail. They're not, not often enough in Canada. But it is really remarkable that after priming us to think about Kathleen Wynne's government as this corrupt, wretched entity, what would for her have been something that a scandal that would have engulfed the legislature for a year is now just another you know, once again, another yeah. Tuesday. I mean, I can Ford. think, yeah, I can think of so many examples of that. Like the tweet you mentioned referred to the Sudbury by-election scandal, yes. which was where basically the liberals wanted to run someone else for their party as opposed to the guy who had ran before. <laughs> and it like weirdly ended up in court, which was crazy. And like, whatever, people, the guy who got punted away was mad and he made a fuss over it. But like, Doug Ford didn't even run nomination races in like any ridings ahead of the last election. He just handpicked everybody. There's that. I mean, the fundraising stuff like we keep talking about, Kathleen Wynne was like, and, and they were having really high-priced fundraisers and that's bad. But like, again, headline after headline completely hammered over it, whereas Doug Ford's been slowly increasing the amount that people can donate to political parties and playing it to his favor over and over again and we barely talk about it. With government advertising, Kathleen Wynne got it was all embroiled in so many scandals about a government advertising and the auditor general's report which we're going to get to like mentions in a small thing at the end that like the pcs have been part do using partisan advertising last year's report said that too nobody talks about it yeah you'd think that would be the sort of thing that you know they would be hammered on in an election, but I don't really recall that being a, a theme. Well, you know, it's true. They, that wasn't a theme. And I always thought that during the last election campaign, like, why isn't Andrea Horvath naming names, like, call out the PCs for very specific incidents of at least cronyism? That could get people's backs up because, again, that's basically what Doug Ford ran on, you know, in 2018 was that Kathleen Wynne is corrupt and, you know, does favors for friends, blah, 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 blah. I mean, to bring it back to the green belt and you know what this perceived corruption means like i mean do you think that people living under kathleen wynn's government 
because they, you know, assuming they read headlines about all this stuff we're talking about, had in their head, like, damn, Ontario is the most corrupt province. Everything's so corrupt. And then now they're in Doug Ford's world and this is happening where all of his developer buddies, quote unquote, are going to make millions or hundreds of millions or billions off of his policies and are like, well, Ontario, so corrupt. And maybe are they right about all of that? Like what? I mean, they could be like, well, ever, well, everyone does it. That's how it works. Ingraining such a level of cynicism that you just roll your eyes at this point is like, well, that's just what they do as opposed to, wait a minute, that's probably shouldn't be happening and maybe there should be an investigation. Well, and when there is this level of like cynicism in the air, it does make it harder for earnest politics to um, make sense to people. Like the the day we're recording this, Monday, December 5th, the NDP, this is the last day that anyone can register to enter their mm. leadership race. And so far, uh, unless something crazy happens in the next, <laughs> by midnight tonight, there's only going to be one candidate, Marit Stiles. Um, so it'll basically be a coronation. I'm still kind of, you know, wondering what to think of that. Like, you know, the winner is going to be the official leader of the official opposition. That's, you know, that's a lot better than the liberal leadership race to replace Kathleen Wynne when you were going to be the leader of a third party with like seven people in it. And, you know, I you hear Marit Stiles kind of talk about her plan and, you know, building up education and, uh, you know, supporting workers and, you know, all of this really nice stuff. But is that harder for that to resonate with people when they just look around and see governments? Um, when they're made to believe that government couldn't accomplish that even if they wanted to. Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And now it's time for Thoroughly Audited Disasters of the Year. <laughs> Last week, Auditor General Bonnie Lissick's annual report dropped, which we always like to cover because it's kind of like when you get like a book about like about current affairs or about some event that some recent event that news event that you've already sort of lived through. And there's some stuff in there that's new, but it's more about how it like fills out the details of stuff that you've already seen happen. And it just tells you like, okay, I kind of knew this already happened, but I'm really glad someone shaded it all in and filled it out. Like, ah, that's the discussion that led to this bullshit. It's just really a treasure trove of like details that she was able to find out that no one else would have the power to actually find out. And just like nice long list, like, oh, here's all the government, here are all the government services that were knocked offline when Rogers went out. Things like that. Um, so it's more than a thousand pages. It's several volumes, many volumes. And we decided we we're going to do a lightning round where Allison and I both bring you a few of our favorite tidbits. We're going to rate them not on how important each one of them is, because that varies widely and is super duper subjective. But based on to whose fault we can ultimately ascribe them, whether that may be Doug Ford, uh, whether that may be the public service and or provincial government as a whole, or whether it's just the general Ontario entropy of indifference. You know what we're talking about. I'll go first. Yes, please. 
According to Bonnie Lissick, the private companies who the PCs gave contracts to to give out COVID vaccines did a very bad job. Queen's Park Today was the outlet that broke the story about FH Health getting a sole source contract to give out the vaccines in January. That was, as we discovered, uh, only a few months after the company's whole board and a bunch of its family members donated $54,000 to the PCs. Uh, Well, the AG investigated that and found there was not value for money because very few people went to these clinics, which she noted did not even have signs advertising that vaccines were available. That was the one where there was like they had one at the zoo, but there was no sign. There was like one sign somewhere zoo around around the zoo. Exactly. And then there was like nine or 10 other clinics and none of them had signs. And because of that, FH Health was wasting 20 percent of the vaccines it was provided. In the final four days before its clinics wound down in March, FH Health wasted nearly five times as many vaccine doses as it administered. How do you rate that? Uh, No, that's Doug Ford. Yeah, that's Doug Ford. Very, very, very Doug Ford thing. My first thing, it's not even really one thing in the many, many multifarious volumes of this report, but it's actually a recurring theme that I, I noticed across multiple reports. So, for example, one of the reports is about conserving the Niagara Escarpment. There's an entity called the Niagara Niagara Escarpment Commission. In that case, the Auditor General raised the concern that, you know, most of the uh, public at large members, including the chair, represented only a portion of the region that that actually covers. And they also raised the concern that, you know, a membership had a more narrow variety of perspectives than it did previously with more public at large members from industry and few with environmental expertise. And also a few of them were women. That by itself is like, yeah, it sounds about what they would do. Now from the report on the Real Estate Council of Ontario, uh, the Auditor General observed that although the council was established by the Ontario government to administer the law with the purpose of protecting the public interest, they found that the board of directors consists of individuals that almost exclusively represent registrants in the real estate industry, not the public at large. And then in another one on a report on the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation, Casinos, Lotteries, and Internet Gaming, it said about the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation itself that there was an inadequate analysis of the competency of the directors, the consisting, of, they said, of informal internal email exchanges to ascertain expertise. The analysis lacks sufficient validation of calibration of, or calibration of competencies or the submission of resumes. So they didn't have to put in resumes to help run this corporation. And then there's a bunch of finger pointing about who was supposed to do that and whatever. They didn't evaluate for potential operational experience in cybersecurity or internal controls or all these different things that they should have. And all of these individually, they're all like, yeah, I can imagine. But again and again in these reports, you see this thing where it's like, who are these people who are getting appointed to the boards? Whose interests are they representing? And are these actually the best people or really even just qualified people for the job? Or are they just... People who donated to to the PC party? Yeah, or just connected to someone somehow in some respect. So that seems to be a a thing that's sort of going on. I'm sure there's more examples. Okay. um, Well, so I would – the rating is probably somewhere in between Doug Ford because I do feel like there's PC party patronage going on there. But also the fact that the public service at large doesn't have to uh, require resumes seems like a provincial government as a whole problem. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. It's somewhere between Doug Ford and public service. Yeah. So the fate of the Niagara Escarpment is probably relying on a bunch of men who own companies that have quarries on the <laughs> Niagara Escarpment. 
All right. My next Hibbit uh, actually goes back to the Real Estate Council of Ontario. Like Jono said, it exists to regulate and make sure real estate agents follow the law. And in Ontario, in case you didn't notice, uh, real estate is uh, quite the industry. Very big. Lots of people make lots of money. Um, And some would say our entire economy is dependent on it. And what uh, the Auditor General found is that fines levied on real estate agents and mortgage brokers by the Real Estate Council are largely lower than the commission that they earn on unethical transactions. For instance, an agent who was mentioned in the report, they lied to their clients about appliances being included in the home that they bought, and the agent was fined far less than the commission they made selling the home, and also less than the home buyers had to pay to buy out the leases on the appliances that they found out they didn't actually own. Mm. In another case, a, a real estate agent was uh, representing both a buyer and a seller of a home. So it rep- say we're representing the seller, and then they're taking bids on who to buy it. Well, they didn't accept bids from anyone else who wasn't their client. So they ended up earning like $85,000 on these transactions. I, in commission and their fine for doing that was like 5000 bucks. So paying fines like this are just a cost of doing business in Ontario's real estate sector, the AG said. To that, I, re- I really mm. think I want to rank that general yeah, Ontario absolutely. entropy of indifference. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, Canada-wide, too. Certainly my overall impression and what I've learned from Commons is that basically there is very, very little accountability for corporations in Canada, even arguably even less than there is in the States. Yeah, remember those all those private long-term care homeowners who got bonuses after the pandemic? <sighs> yes. So my next one is from the report on the COVID-19 vaccination program. You'll be surprised to learn it did not go smoothly. Uh, no, I mean, most of it's not a surprise. It's just a documenting of like everything we like already knew from going through this experience of trying to get vaccinated ourselves. So part of this report, there's actually a few paragraphs uh, under the heading, third-party organization intervene to assist the public with vaccination appointment booking. The Auditor General gives a bit of a rundown of Vaccine Hunters Canada and seemingly to make the point that like the system that the province developed was so inadequate that a citizens group had to step up and basically fill in and fulfill some basic functions of helping people navigate this absolute labyrinth of you know trying to get vaccinated. She notes that vaccine hunters, you know, they had partnerships with providers such as Sobeys and Walmart to help figure out their appointment systems, that there was a partnership with the city of Toronto, which the city provided to vaccine hunters, the vaccination clinic appointment availability for the next day at the end of each day. And then there's the final paragraph here, sort of the punchline. The Ontario Ministry of Health informed us that it had made a deliberate decision not to reach out to Vaccine Hunters Canada or refer to Vaccine Hunters Canada by name in media conferences because it did not want to show preference for any third party that was attempting to help Ontarians coordinate their bookings. I love the idea that there are these rival, like roaming rival bands of of vaccine hunters hunting the vaccine landscape like like Mad Max, and they don't want to show favoritism over one or the other, uh, you know, lest like one become the ruler and they have to, and then they're on the wrong side of that. Um, no, I mean, clearly they didn't want to acknowledge them because that would mean acknowledging how poor a job they did. But I really like the detail that not only did they not connect with them, but they made a point of not referring to them by name. Ugh, I, I didn't even read that section of the report, honestly. We're thinking back to the, uh, the like, looking for vaccine times is, like, so haunting to me. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I'm triggered. I think we can probably blame that on public service provincial government as a whole. 
But I mean, that's probably like strict premier's office communications. Probably, yeah. So actually, Doug Ford. It definitely sounds like that sort of communications would be sufficiently centralized in the premier's office or potentially the health minister's office. But I also imagine those communications were centralized in the premier's office, too. So Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Doug Ford did this. Um, my last one. Okay. Ontario's Ministry of Natural Resources is doing nothing to manage invasive species in the province. According to the Auditor General, there's only one person in the office in charge of that file, which means it takes three to four years before a species can be deemed invasive, even if surrounding provinces or states have already decided that they are. That means when an implacive plant or mollusk or moth starts spreading in Ontario, harming native species and habitats, we're doing nothing to eradicate it quickly. We don't even have it on the record that it's invasive until four years later. Like, invasive species caused billions of dollars in damages. Like, they noted that um, municipalities and I think Hydro One or, or maybe Ontario Power Generation spent millions of dollars cleaning zebra mussels ah. off of, like, pipes from power plants and water wastewater facilities because left without them, mussels just, like, fill up everything. Tackling zebra mussels is we're a little late on that one, but, like, other invasive species could be coming, are yeah. coming, and we're doing nothing to stop it. So that just seems like something you would assume the government was at least paying attention to. Apparently not. Also, the AG noted, thanks to a lack of horticultural regulation, mm-hmm. Dozens of invasive plant species are available for purchase at garden centers. So once again, like bending a little shop of horrors. Still haven't seen it, but I believe you. Yes. <laughs> I feel like like other governments might staff that office better. Like I'm imagining, like as it is with one person, I'm kind of imagining like Indiana Jones and a pit of snakes or rats or fire ants or whatever <laughs> it was in the second movie. I think it was a different type of bug. But to me, without knowing the further details, it's equally plausible that that's just how well the how well or how poorly the office had long been staffed versus that's something someone left at one point a few years ago and was just never replaced because that's not something that the government considers important. This government considers important. Yeah, I agree. I think we used to like talk about invasive species a bit when Kathleen Wynne was in government, but we don't we don't talk about them anymore. But they're coming. Man, those lantern moths or whatever that like took over New York City last year. They're not that far away, guys. My last one, going back to the day the Auditor General's report came out, or actually a few hours before it came out, since this was in the print newspapers in the morning, or particularly it was in the Toronto Star that morning of Wednesday, November 30th. On page A3, there was a Star-exclusive story headlined, Casinos Pass AG's Sting Operation, but agents sent to test anti-money laundering measures served with bans. It's a story based on industry sources, unnamed sources, who told the reporter, Robert Benzie, who's the Star's Queen's Park Bureau chief, about how the Auditor General undertook an investigation into the anti-money laundering protocols at Ontario casinos. And in the course of that, the casinos, if reading this article, evidently passed. The casinos managed to catch the people. The Auditor General, you know, police weren't super happy. The people got banned from the casinos. Uh, and the casino, they, what a waste of time and money this was because, you know, as the headline says, casinos pass AG's sting operation. They reached the Auditor General for comment, but because she hadn't yet delivered her report to, report to the legislature, she couldn't really say anything. So the report came out that morning, and it turns out the story was um, wrong. Or it was half wrong, but wrong, but wildly misleading enough that it's effectively wrong. So whoever the sources were, they, these unnamed sources, industry sources that uh, spoke to the star, they talked about the cases where uh, the mystery shoppers were caught. They didn't talk about or were unaware of the occasions when the mystery shoppers got away with it. So the the 
auditor general, basically through a third party firm, they hire people to basically go in and test how robust, basically whether the, the casinos were following the appropriate protocols that are supposed to catch out money laundering. Uh, at two of the casinos they went to, everything worked as it was supposed to and they were caught. At two other casinos, they got away with it. And then they went Multiple back. Multiple times. And then they went back and did it again just to make sure it wasn't just some random fuck up like this, but that there was actually a consistent failure of implementation of policy. The so most- it's people walking in with like eight to $10,000 cash, gambling for like a very short period of time, yes. taking that cash, their uh, winnings or whatever, all, but like most of it is money they just brought in and then getting it changed into a check that now says OLG on it that they can put in the bank. And now all of a sudden your $10,000 that, you know, hypothetically in the real world could come from crime is now a nice certified check and you have just laundered that money. As the star wrote, uh, but such occurrences are rare in Canada where casinos are highly regulated by government. It doesn't really offer any sort of citation for that because it also seems weirdly, like it seems like a strange statement to offer that an assertion because that used to be a huge fucking problem in BC until they cracked down on it wildly. So it's less of a problem there now. And how much of a problem it is in other provinces? Uh, I mean, if they had the same scrutiny that BC did, thanks to I think it was global news there, maybe we would know. I just want to add that this this is supposed to be the easy type of money laundering to catch. That was happening, I'm sure, in B.C. casinos. But there was also massive crime rings, very complicated, detailed stuff going on that is, I think, in lots of ways harder to catch than this sort of thing. So both things are bad. But, like, the fact this simple type of money laundering is easy to do in Ontario casinos is really bad. And that should be the headline of every story that you're writing about this. Yeah, as the star said in, in one of its stories the next day, as first revealed by the star, Lissick also found the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation needs to clamp down on potential money laundering casinos, which of course was not what the star had revealed. Yeah, so uh, it's an it's an issue and it is one that uh, but you may or may not know depending on which day you read the star. Well, and then if you read the star the next day, I believe you get a story about how Doug Ford thinks it's bad that Lessig did this and how the, the OPP think it's bad that Lessig did this and how she should stay in her lane and that that should be the takeaway of the sting operation is that, that this awful auditor general is too footloose and fancy free with her uh, procedures. And, and that's what's at the, the danger to Ontarians, not the um, blatant money laundering that's allowed in our casinos. The auditor general has to stay in her lane, you know, and, and focus on, on where there's waste of money. You can't do a sting operation. You can't all of a sudden deputize yourself and think you're the Secret Service going around doing sting operations that failed, uh, by the way, and they, they were caught. Now these poor folks that they hired are now banned from the casinos. Uh, we rate this as well. It's not Doug Ford's fault that the star got their story wrong, although it, although it could, could be. be. <laughs> I'm not going to say it wasn't yeah. the premier's office I mean, that leaked that. It's incredibly possible. Well, let's see. How would we rate the, the lack of implementation of the, the money laundering? Um, you know, the province has the power to crack down on the OLG and make it like work better if it cares, but it doesn't. So That's true of everything, really. The province has the power to make something work better if it cares, but it doesn't. That was Like the Doug, a show about Ontario entropy. I think we may have used that one before. 
Okay, um, that was Wag the Doug, a show about Kathleen Wynne, the most corrupt premier in Ontario history. We may or may not have used that one. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and you can find me on Twitter at Goldsby and on Mastodon at I haven't yet memorized what my Mastodon name is, but I think I'm the only Goldsby on there, at least I hope so. I also occasionally host Shortcuts, which is the media criticism show that comes out Thursdays on the main Candleland feed. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at Queen's Park Today. Our producer is Katie Lore, Andre Pru is our production coordinator, and our theme music is, as always, by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener-supported. Go to canadaland.com slash join to help us keep this podcast going. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a CanadaLand supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all CanadaLand shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically nothing costs $2 anymore. You could like get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 